You guys know that I am a movie buff. Uh, I enjoy going to the movies. I was there on Friday afternoon by myself. I had way too much popcorn. I felt terrible the rest of the day. Uh, but I just love going to the movies. And I can remember uh, when I was a kid that there was a, a really kind of weird uh, director. He made bizarre movies that were popular with some, and his name was Woody Allen. Um, Woody Allen had a, a, quite a following, um, and, uh, and so he was a, a famous director, especially during the last part of the 20th century. Um, and during that time, as he was making films in Hollywood, he began to date an actress and model named Mia Farrow. And so they had this kind of on-again, off-again relationship. Back then, it was the subject of the tabloids, the Inquirer, uh, and others talked about their relationship. Uh, she had previously been married to someone else, and they'd had kids together and adopted children. And so um, as that marriage ended, you know, Woody showed up in their family, and it was this bizarre kind of group of, of children and this couple who wasn't together, and, and they ended up having a child together, and it was just this kind of bizarre relationship that was kind of all over the tabloids. Uh, but then eventually, like her previous relationship had, their relationship kind of fizzled. And one day, Pharaoh found herself at Woody Allen's house, and she was waiting for him, and she was looking at the photos on the mantle at the house. And she saw a photo that just grabbed her attention. It, it was actually like an inappropriate photo. And as she looked closer, she realized that it was a photo of her daughter, her daughter named Soon Yi. And, and it was not like, I'm trying to be appropriate for kids in there. And there was stuff on there that should not have been a photo in somebody's house. And as she asked Woody about it, she discovered that Woody Allen, her ex, had started dating her daughter. At the time, Allen was 56 and Soon Yi was 21. And it was, again, the subject, if you remember the early 90s, this was a very famous relationship between Woody and the stepdaughter of his, you know, former girlfriend thing. It's just, this is a bizarre relationship I'm trying to describe to you this morning, you know. But, but as this became news, it, it became the subject of, of certain conversations. And so one of the best biographers and interviewers of the last 30 years, Walter Isaacson, sat down with Alan. Now, Isaacson's a great question asker, and he's a great writer. His books on Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci are just a gripping, great reads. And so Isaacson sat down with Woody Allen in 1992 to talk about this relationship. And if you want to just read something fun today, I wouldn't say fun, it's like ha-ha fun, but like just fascinating. Just Google Walter Isaacson interviews Alan. I read the transcript this week. It reads like a summary of how people think in this world and in this moment. And Isaacson spends a long time trying to get Alan to admit that this is at minimum weird, at maximum bad, but Alan won't take the bait. He just continues to avoid the questions. And finally, when the, the conversation ends, Alan makes a statement that I think is the summary of the challenge that we're facing today. And he says, the heart wants what the heart wants. That was his explanation of having a relationship with a woman and then having a relationship with her daughter. The heart wants what the heart wants. But underneath those seven words is a lie that I think we're all susceptible to. And that lie is, is if you give the heart what it wants, that's the path to happiness and the good life. And, and while you might be repulsed by Woody Allen, like, like I certainly am right now, 
I think all of us have felt at times or believed at times or operated at times as if, if we gave our own hearts what our own heart wants. That would be what leads us to a place of happiness. And that, at its heart, is what we're talking about on the road to Easter in this series that we're calling Live No Lies. We're talking about the enemies of our soul that keep us from all that God intends for us. And it was kind of mentioned in the video you watched a minute ago that the great danger that we're facing is not just that we believe lies, but but rather that we live them. And, and that lie that if we just give our heart what, we, what it wants, that we'll find our place in happiness, that's not just a lie that we believe, it's a lie that we live. And if you were here for week one or you've been with us for any part of this series, you know the three enemies of our souls that we're talking about in the series are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Kind of to catch you up, we tackled the world in the first couple weeks. We're now moving on to the flesh today, and we'll get to the devil later this month. And we said in this series, if you missed it, that the world isn't the planet that we're on, although that is the world. The world we're talking about isn't the people living on the planet, billions and billions. The world we're talking about is a system of ideas and practices that are rooted in rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. So, with that kind of mm, fun introduction this morning, let's dive into the big idea today if you're taking notes. The big idea is this. The good life comes as we deny the flesh rather than deify it. The good life comes to us, what we're going to learn today, not through deifying the flesh, but by denying it. Now, I know, I'm pretty sure most of us know the word deny, say no, reject. The word deify, I want to make sure that we all understand this word. The word deify means to worship, regard, or treat someone or something as a god. To take something that's not God and to make it as if it is God. And that's, I think, the challenge we're going to face today with the flesh. Do we deny it? and say no to it, or do we deify it and make it God where we always say yes to it? So today, as you're taking notes, there's three questions we're going to walk through when it comes to the flesh. And just a reminder, I'm not going to say everything there is about the flesh today. That's next week too. So if you're like, Scott, you didn't mention that, or you didn't go into that, or I'm confused by that, or what about this? That's next week. There's a chance to kind of get to that too. So here's the first question. What is the flesh? What does the flesh mean? Well, what we're going to learn today is the flesh means a lot of things. And so we need to get clear on what it does mean. As we said in week one, in English and Hebrew and Greek and so many languages, you have words that have ranges of meaning. I I brought another example. We did this week one. The, The word squash has so many meanings. For those of you who are gardeners, maybe you look forward right now in this season to planting squash. For those of you who were really into racquetball, you know that squash is a similar game that was really popular back in the day. Also, this time of year, as things are getting warmer, you go in your bathroom, there next to your toilet is a little bug. What do you do? You squash it. Again, one word, three very different meanings. The same thing is true with the flesh. We have like the flesh, you can kind of grab your flesh this morning, uh, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is described in Ephesians 2. 
where Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. That's where we were the last couple weeks. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That's the devil where we're going to go in a couple weeks. Then Paul says, we all too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So here's my best attempt to define that word, the flesh that you see there, and the Greek word sarks that it comes from. Here's the definition. It's on your handout so you have it in front of you. The flesh is the sinful desire in us that feels natural to our bodies and yet is wrong. When we use the flesh in this series, that's what we mean. That there are desires within you that feel as natural as breathing and hunger and, and being cold and desiring to be warm. And yet those desires are wrong. It's not wrong to be warm and it's not wrong, wrong to want to be fed. But there are fleshly sinful desires in you that on the surface they feel natural. But according to God and according to scripture, they're wrong. And a great example of one of those is what Woody Allen talked about. Because to him, the heart wants what the heart wants. So I should just give in to that desire. It's natural. But any of us, regardless of what you believe about the Bible, will go, hey, it's not a good thing for a 56-year-old man to have a relationship with a woman. And then when he leaves her, go get with her 21-year-old daughter. The, the flesh may naturally want that, but it's wrong. And yet, we live in a world and a time in which this is standard operating procedure. The heart wants what it wants, so give it to it. And we, all, we have phrases to summarize this. You hear them all the time. Follow your heart. You do you. If it makes you happy. This is just how we functionally live. In this moment and in this world. But here's the thing. When you put on a person or you allow on yourself the burden of trying to go, what's going to make me happy? What's my purpose? What do I want? What's my life going to be about? Where am I going to find meaning? When you put all of those questions and all of that weight on yourself that you're the one who decides it. That you're the one who determines it. That you're the one who's responsible for it. What you find is the world we're living today with unprecedented levels of loneliness, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, and suicide. There are more people today who are lonely, anxious, depressed, hopeless, suicidal, on psychiatric drugs than at any point in human history. And yet, we are the wealthiest, most knowledgeable, most technologically advanced culture ever. How can those two things be true? How can we have invented these and be this? It's because 
We were never meant to carry the burden the flesh puts on us. We were never meant to be the people who decide and determine ultimately what's right and what's wrong. We were never meant to be the people whose wants determined the future of our lives. We were never meant to carry the burden of how do I make up my purpose and my value and my meaning and my worth and what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong and what's ethical and non-ethical. Put another way, when we deify the flesh, we pick up a burden that only God can carry. And that's why everywhere I go, I meet people who are weary. They're exhausted. So many of us, if we're honest, if somebody asked us how we're doing, it's just, I'm tired. I'm spent. And that's not just because we didn't sleep well last night. It's because there's a burden that our culture has put on our shoulders that our bodies and souls were not designed by God to carry. Because newsflash, we're not God. And that's why I said the good life comes as we deny the flesh rather than deify it. That's why this is so dangerous. Because if you try to carry the burden that only God can carry, you will crush yourself and your soul. Burnout will just be the minimum of your challenges. That's the first thing. The first question I want us to explore. The second one is this. What does living according to the flesh lead to in our lives? And to dive into this question, you're going to need your Bible this morning. So I want to invite you to open up to the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Romans is uh, written by Paul. It's near the beginning of the New Testament, but near the back of your Bible. It's it's Paul's longest, um, deepest, um, densest work. It's not the easiest book to read, but when I open up Romans chapter 7 and I read Romans 7, 18 through 25, I feel like Paul is in my head. I feel like he knows what I know and he's been living what I've been living. If you've got your Bible, follow along. If not, it'll be here on the screen. This is what Paul says. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I know that the one that does it, I am no longer the one who does it, but it's the sin that lives within me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. It feels like my life. For a lot of you, that feels like this week. 
You had a plan last Sunday of what you wanted to do. And then the week happened. And you're looking back and going, man, I am not doing what I want to be doing. And Paul explains it to us clearly. And he says, hey, if you want to understand what's going on inside of you, you have to understand the reality of the flesh. In the last couple of weeks in the series, we discussed the world. And, and with the world, we said there's a battle going on around you in the world. There's a system of ideas and practices that are trying to form you. And so there's this battle you need to wake up to. Well, with the flesh, what we're saying is there's also a battle, but it's within you. The world is battling around you, but the flesh is battling within you. And and the visual I want to give you is this, that within you, there is a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and your soul is the battlefield. And what Paul is saying is that in me, because I'm a follower of Jesus and I've experienced God's grace, there is this longing and desire to do what is right. But whenever I start stepping towards that desire for what's right, there is also the desire to do what is wrong, to do what is easy. And he says, I feel like there's just this war going on inside my chest every single day. And he says, that's why I can't give in to the flesh. That's why I need God to rescue me. What a wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from this? I can't win this war myself. And this is why I would push back on the, the statement from Woody Allen, the heart wants what it wants because you can't blindly trust what your heart wants because your heart is at war. Now, let me be really clear. I am not saying that the desires of your heart are 100% always wrong. If you're a follower of Jesus, while the flesh is in your heart, so is now the Holy Spirit. And, And while the prophet Isaiah would tell us that the heart is wretched and it's wicked and evil, who can understand it? Jesus is greater than the wickedness of your heart. And he's now bringing those new desires to life. So what you have to do is not blindly accept everything in your heart as what God wants, nor blindly reject everything in your heart. You have to learn to have discernment. And let me get real practical for what this looks like in my life. This is a picture of my family here. Uh, My wife has ensured that every year on Christmas, we will have matching pajamas. That's what she's committed to in our marriage. I unfortunately refuse to preach in Christmas pajamas. I know you're sad. I know you're disappointed. I just, I can't do it. I can't do Christmas Eve preaching in pajamas, but we always dress up after the service. And so every day when I go home, I feel this war between my flesh and my spirit. God's spirit within me. I go home and my kids, they want to talk about their days. They want to get help with homework. They want to tell me the newest Minecraft thing they learned, you know. But my flesh, I just want to sit on the couch, turn on the TV, veg out and check out because I'm tired from work. I feel this battle. My wife wants to share about stuff that she's dealing with and she wants me to listen. But in my flesh, I just want to fix it for her, give her the answer and move on. But there's this battle going on. Every morning, my alarm goes off. And I want to get up and I want to exercise and I want to have oatmeal for breakfast, but my flesh wants extra bacon and, and hash browns and eggs and cheese, but I can't have cheese because I'm lactose intolerant. It's a terrible life. There's this war going on inside of me. Can you relate to this? 
I simultaneously have these great desires, but I have this flesh. And what I ultimately give myself to and what you give yourself to, it shapes you and it consumes you and it makes you into a certain kind of person. And that's why if the question is, what does giving into the flesh lead to? It leads to the kind of person you become. If you deny it or you deify it, those are two separate roads that head to very different destinations. And we see this. Again, I'm going to turn to to TV and film. We see this in a character like this guy, Gollum. Everywhere he goes, he says, my precious, my precious. He's consumed with the ring. And by the end of the film, he has stopped being human. Whatever he is here is not the creature that he was at the beginning of the story. What he's given himself to has consumed him and shaped him. For those of you who love TV, this was the story of Walter White and Breaking Bad. He began the story, somebody who just needed to survive a hard circumstance, but he gave himself to evil enterprise after evil enterprise, crime after crime after crime, that by the end, not only does his face look different, but his soul looks different. And friends, the same thing is true for you. If you give yourself to the flesh, that is not a benign, accidental, unconsequential decision. Giving yourself to this flesh shapes who you become. But here's the good news. The good news is you don't have to give yourself to the flesh. You can choose to deny the flesh rather than deify it. And that is the path that Jesus promises us heads to the good life. That's the second question. Third question is this. Why are freedom and the flesh such a dangerous combination. Why are freedom and the flesh such a dangerous combination? Well, if you have your Bibles still near you or turned on, just go a couple books back from Romans to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. I was reading through Galatians this week and remembering it was one of the first books that we, I preached through in its entirety when I came to Cornerstone, uh, one of the first summers. And uh, Galatians 5 is a a rich, rich book. 5 is the chapter. It could be a whole book. Um, But what what Paul says in Galatians 5, we're going to bounce around in. So just try to follow along. I wish I could read the whole chapter today. But here's what he says beginning in verse 1. He says, For freedom Christ set us free. So stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So just pause right here. He's saying, hey, you're free. Don't go back into unfreedom. Christ gave himself so you could be free. So stand firm in that. If, if your Bibles are, are open or maybe like mine, you turn the page, go down to verse 13. He says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but serve one another through love. So though you're free, you now have the opportunity to decide what you're going to do with the flesh because you're no longer a slave to the flesh. You have the freedom to choose. 
Then in verse 16, he says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not care at the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. This is Romans 7 again. And then verse 24, he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul is trying to help us understand here is that freedom is a dangerous thing. That that just because you're free, it doesn't mean that you will never struggle with what you struggled with when you were enslaved. And this idea of freedom is at the core of who we are, not just as followers of Jesus, but as citizens of this country. I mean, if you go back to the very beginning, Patrick Henry in Virginia gets up and he says, give me liberty or give me death. In the Declaration of Independence, it says that God has given us these inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At the core of our nation is this idea of liberty that we now commonly refer to as freedom. But over the 250 years that have passed since the founding of our country to today, the idea of freedom and our understanding of it has shifted so that now fundamentally when most people say, I want freedom, what they mean is I want the freedom to do whatever I want. This is our functional idea of freedom. No one is going to tell me what to do. I have the freedom to do whatever I want. But this idea of kind of functional understanding of American freedom is not synonymous with the biblical understanding of freedom. Because as Paul is talking in Galatians chapter 5, he is, he's thinking less about freedom to do whatever you want and more freedom from that you're no longer enslaved to sin and so you no longer do what you were enslaved to. So he isn't saying, hey, now go out and do whatever you want. He's saying you now have the freedom to choose between your old way and this new way. So don't abuse your freedom to do whatever you want and go back into and choose what Jesus bled and died for. And that's why freedom can be a dangerous thing. Because though the flesh has been crucified, it's still really loud. And a lot of us have spent our whole lives listening to it. And though it's not more powerful than Jesus, at times it's more powerful than our strength and our willpower, our discipline. You know, late at night, early in the morning, after a fight with somebody you love, when you're not in a good place mentally and emotionally, that voice can be real convincing, can be real compelling. And and what Jesus came to do was set us free, not only eternally, but in the present, so that we leave behind the behaviors that were reflective of our slavery to the flesh. Our staff's reading through a book right now, and as I was reading through it, I wasn't sermon prepping, but I saw this quote. I said, that's perfect for the sermon. And so I grabbed it. Steve Cuss explains it this way. He says that we all could fill in this blank. Jesus died, so I don't have to blank anymore. 
When, when the flesh is crucified on the cross with Jesus, we get free in really practical ways. And because Jesus died, there's things we no longer have to do anymore. For, for some of us, and I would include myself in this, uh, at times in my life, I have been compelled by a desire for people to like me, by insecurity, making my sense of self rise and fall with others' opinions of me. And when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he, and he defeats the power of the flesh, what happens is I no longer need you to like me to feel okay. Because the one who created me and knows me better than anybody else did something for me that you will never do. He died on the cross and he was my sacrifice and he set me free and he died so I don't have to seek people's approval anymore. Some of you, you get real uncomfortable when conversations get too personal. When emotions start coming out and your way of coping with this is you make people laugh. Ever since you were in, in school, you were the, the, the court jester and the class clown. And because you get uncomfortable, making people laugh is your um, recovery mechanism. And you tell jokes and you lighten the mood so that things never make you too uncomfortable. Well, guess what? Jesus came not so you could be comfortable, but so you could be free. So you no longer have to worry about feeling discomfort or feeling people's opinions or feeling people not liking you. Jesus died so you no longer have to make people laugh anymore. And if you're funny, please keep telling us jokes. We love the jokes. But you no longer need the jokes. I, I, when I can remember my very first sermon I gave, my, my, my girlfriend at the time, her dad said, Scott, that was a great sermon. But you talk so fast, I don't know anything you said. You just were very passionate up there. And there's still some times I get excited and I start kind of speeding up. But from that beginning moment, there's a part of me that needed to get everything perfect. I needed to get all the slides right. I needed to get the outline right and the questions right. And there's a part of me that still sometimes is a perfectionist in my sermons. But guess what? God doesn't love me anymore if my sermon is perfect or if it's 80%. So guess what? Jesus died so every sermon doesn't have to be the gold standard anymore. Some of you, your, your sense of self-worth is tied up in your appearance. And so you look in the mirror and you find new places where fat is cropping up or new places where wrinkles are showing up. And so you do all you can to exercise and eat right and put on creams and take supplements and go to places and pay thousands of dollars to get treatments so that you'll feel okay by yourself. But before you were even born and you were in your mother's womb, Jesus knew every hair on your head, every skin pigment, and every day of your life. And he knows you better than anybody else. And he loves you more than everyone else. And whether you get more fat or less fat, you get more Botox or less Botox, more wrinkles or less wrinkles, his love for you will never change. And Jesus died so that you don't have to remove every ounce of fat and every wrinkle. Some of you, you, you bought a grace house here in Prescott. But now you want a bigger house. Now you got a great view. But you want an even better view. Make a great salary now. You want a better salary. You're getting great returns from the market. You want better returns from the market. 
because your worth and value is tied up in your worth and value. And here's the thing. Jesus died, so you don't have to prove your worth through your salary amount anymore. You see where I'm going? This is what the battle over the flesh looks like when Jesus comes and sets us free. So don't use your freedom the wrong way. Because there's a war at place. Jesus spoke to this in John 10.10. He said this. He said, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. He came for our freedom. And so we don't need to give that freedom away as a way to indulge the flesh. The good life that Jesus came to give us, it comes as we deny the flesh rather than deify it. Now next week, we're going to continue with the flesh part two, and we're going to dive really practically into how we fight and win this battle. But before we do, I want to give you some next steps to get you going this week. And so here's three. If you got your notes, you can take notes. The first one is this. I want you to identify specific examples of the flesh in your life. Specific examples. And to do that, you could answer this question. What desires do I have that feel natural to me and are opposed to God? What are the things that naturally I want, but I know from reading scripture, I know from walking with Jesus, I know from what I know about God that they're not what God wants. What does the flesh look like for you? Again, if you don't know what it looks like, how do you know to deny it? So I want you to spend time identifying some specific examples of the flesh. Number two, with your community group or a trusted friend, I want you to discuss the most challenging inner wars that you're experiencing. Remember that picture of the spirit and the flesh? Where is that happening in your life? And here's the question to prompt your discussion. Where am I feeling the flesh and the spirit battling against each other? Where is that war happening in your life and in your heart? And again, I mentioned, have this conversation with someone else, with your group, if you're in one of our groups, with a trusted friend. And then third, I want you to complete this sentence, Jesus died, so I don't have to blank anymore. What is it that your flesh and your indulgence of it compels you to do that because Jesus died, you don't have to do that anymore? And what I want you to do is I want you to exchange answers with your group this week when you meet or with a trusted friend, and I want you to identify your next step in this area. So if you're saying, hey, maybe you're like me, I don't have to please people or get their approval anymore, okay? So then what comes next? Maybe when you post something, you put your phone away and don't come back for 24 hours, Maybe you don't open your phone first thing in the morning when you wake up. Maybe you intentionally show up to an event with a shoe untied or a stain on your pants. Some of you are like, why would I ever do that? Because it doesn't matter what they think. You already have his approval. And you're like, Scott, I'm supposed to talk to somebody about that? Yeah. That requires risk and vulnerability. Because here's the thing, the kind of community you need to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil is not superficial. It's not the kind of superficial like, hey, how was the weather? Did you enjoy the Super Bowl? What are you doing for spring break? 
That's not the kind of community that's going to transform us, and that kind of community is not going to magically appear in your life. When the flesh gets loud and you need somebody to help you, remind you of the truth and resist it, in that moment, you don't build that community or summon it like you ask Siri for directions. You build it over time. And just so you know, when you're sharing vulnerably about the power of the flesh in your life, you're talking to somebody who also is battling the flesh in their life. So it may seem like they have it all together, but the flesh is a struggle for them too. So I know I'm asking you to be risky and vulnerable, but this battle is real and we're not going to win it by ourselves. And we're not going to win it with Sunday friends. And we're not going to win it by summoning Siri. We're going to win it by relying on the people that we've been walking with and sharing with for a long time. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that this battle that we're in, that's around us, that this battle that's going on within us is a battle that, that seems bigger and stronger than us. But Jesus, it's not bigger and stronger than you. When you went to the cross and you were crucified, you also crucified the power of the flesh for those of us who put their faith and trust in you. And in Galatians 2, Paul wrote through your inspiration that he had been crucified with you so that he no longer lived, but you lived in him. And this life that he lived, he didn't live in it according to the flesh anymore, but he lived it according to you. We thank you for the reminder that it's possible to not live a life that's burdened and dominated where we feel defeated by the flesh, where we don't constantly do the things that we don't want to do and we find ourselves unable to do the things we want to do. We thank you, Jesus, that you are more powerful than that and in you we have hope. So right now, Jesus, I pray against any feelings of shame and condemnation that my brothers and sisters in this room and those watching feel. Because right after Paul wrote those verses, Jesus, you inspired him to write these words. For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. We thank you that you freed us from the power of shame and condemnation, Jesus. And that you knew all the places that we would stumble, all the places we would fall, all the places that we would give into the flesh. And yet you came for us and you died for us and you set us free. So we pray that you would help us to take steps deeper and deeper into that freedom and you would help us to not use our freedom to indulge our flesh. Thank you, Jesus. Our hope is in you. We're depending on you. You are the only way that we win this battle. We look to you now, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.